Welcome to the Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the LSE. We're thrilled to be back for Season 3 of Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice, a visiting lecture series coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the Department, with Assistant Professor in International Development, Dr Laura Mann. Each week, renowned guest lecturers, including Harjun Chang, Rafif Siada, Branka Milanovic and Jayati Ghosh, share their expertise and spark discussion on a range of contemporary global issues in development, from the links between economics and science fiction, to how inequality is driving the climate crisis, to the impact of social media and disinformation on development. In 2020, we moved the series online, enabling us to host fantastic speakers from around the world and to stream the lectures online. This year, we moved the series back to in-person for our students and staff, but we'll continue to share the lectures with a global audience through YouTube, podcasts and blogs. I hope you enjoy the talk. Okay, so welcome everybody to the second in our Cutting Edge lecture series. Uh, my name is Laura Mann and I'm an assistant uh, professor in the International Development Department uh, and I'm co-organizing the Cutting Edge lecture series this year. Uh, it's my very, very great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker and our discussant, uh, Rafif Ziad and Tiziana Leone. Um, and I have to say, this is the first time in my life where I've told a friend about a speaker and they've been incredibly excited in terms of non-academic friends. But when I told my friends, Paul and Hassan, that Rafif was coming to speak, they were incredibly excited because of her poetry. And if you haven't listened or read her poetry, uh, I would really encourage you to, to listen to some of her videos. It's very beautiful poetry. Um, but tonight, Rafif is not here in her capacity as a poet, although I'm sure that will inflect her presentation. But she's here as a researcher and a lecturer from King's College in the Development Studies Department. Um, Rafif did her PhD at the University of York in Canada and then moved to SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies up the road. Um, I think first she was on a postdoc. It was a very interesting postdoc looking at the sort of politics of transport infrastructure on the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and she more broadly works on the political economy of gender and labor in the Middle East and East Africa. Tonight, she's gonna to be talking about uh, labor and development in Palestine during COVID. Um, and, uh, but she is kind of bringing her experiences both as an academic, but also as a campaigner uh, and somebody who's worked on the ground with uh, NGOs as well. Okay, so uh, we're going to have, uh, Rafif is gonna talk for 40 minutes and then we're going to have our discussant, uh, who is my colleague in the department, Dr. Tiziana Leone. Uh, she is an associate professor in our department and she has done a lot of research projects specifically looking at, um, at uh, reproductive and maternal health in Palestine. And her most recent project, which she's uh, hoping to start soon, is looking at the impact of conflict on puberty in Palestine. So she has a lot of in ground, uh, on the ground, kind of empirically careful work looking at the politics of health in Palestine. So I think we're in for a very big treat. Uh, I'd like everybody to welcome uh, Rafif to the stage and welcome her to our department as well. Thank you.
Thank you very much for that very kind introduction. And thanks to all of you for being here and spending your Friday afternoon with us. Um, I know many of you want to be at the pub, but I think we're going to have a much more interesting conversation. At least I hope I can try. Um, I've been given a clicker, so I'll try my best to, to figure out how to use it. Um, what I want to speak to you about today is this project that I've been working on with a couple of colleagues, uh, Adam Haniya and Rayyad Elsana, a, a project called Working Palestine. As the COVID pandemic began, many of us were locked in our houses. A lot of the conversations were about how do we survive daily where we are. What we felt was really missing in this conversation was actually how COVID was impacting the rest of the world, not just the United States and not just Europe, but actually the rest of the world. And the three of us work on Palestine. So we wanted to understand how COVID-19 hits a place that has prolonged conflict like Palestine. What happens when a so-called health crisis falls upon a situation where there is already ongoing crisis? I want to thank the research team for this project who were based both in Gaza and in the West Bank. Um, it is difficult to do field research in Palestine on any given day due to all the military restrictions. Imagine how difficult it was to carry out this research while also at the same time having to cope with the restrictions of the COVID pandemic. So they were really remarkable in trying to speak to as many people as possible. So the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has had a profound effect on both workers and labor conditions across the globe. And I want to stress the fact that it is an ongoing pandemic because I feel a little bit in this country like we have forgotten that it's an ongoing pandemic. According to the International Labor Organization, the equivalent of 255 million full-time jobs were lost worldwide just in 2020 more than four times the number of jobs that disappeared during the 2008-2009 global financial crash. So this was a massive scale of job losses internationally. But as with all crisis, and a lot of authors have written about this, the pandemic hit very differentially and had very uneven consequences across different segments of societies. The hardest hit were young workers, many of them that were laid off, women, refugees, migrants, and those in the informal sector. So we wanted to map out specifically how these trends were happening in a place like Palestine. Before going into COVID, however, specifically, I wanted to speak about how often we construct ideas around Palestine. There's usually key framings that people use to understand the situation. There's usually the framing of, oh, there's an ancient hatred between Jews and Muslims in that part of the world, and that's why the conflict is ongoing. Other times we are told this is too complicated, we can't understand it, it would take years for us to get to understand this, so it's better to leave it alone and not try to understand it. Sometimes we are told there are two equal sides, they are both wrong, both need to make concessions, and if they just make concessions, everything would move on. And finally, there's the security terrorism paradigm. This became quite significant after 9-11, where people started to see this as a, simply a situation of security. And what I want to do is offer a completely different framing that actually centers the lived reality and the lives of people in the area, rather than trying to construct something as too complicated. And I often tell my students that when somebody tells you something is too complicated, make sure to ask why. 
and make sure to uncomplicate it. Make sure to look at the root causes and understand why a situation is taking shape in the way that it is. So there's a few concepts I want to work with today as we speak about Palestine. I want to center the concept of de-development as proposed by Sarah Roy. I want to speak about the occupied territories in particular as a captive economy and what happens when we look at them as a captive economy. And finally, I want us to use a labor-centered perspective, looking at this from a feminist political economy point of view, looking at the life of labor, of people who live in the occupied territories, rather than these very distant frameworks of ancient hatreds, dehistoricizing the situation, actually looking at the lived reality in an intersectional way. Dedevelopment is defined as a process which undermines or weakens the ability of an economy to grow and expand by preventing it from accessing and utilizing critical inputs needed to promote internal growth beyond specific structural level. Um, this was actually written by Sarah Roy quite some time ago, but it is still the paradigm of the political economy of the occupied territories. This constant de-development, not allowing the economy to actually develop, even worse, it is a captive economy. And many Palestinian economists and theorists have actually talked about the OPT as a captive economy. In Palestine, as we speak about COVID, unfolded in a context of both a captive, fragmented, and de-developed economy that endured decades of Israeli military occupation and settler colonialism. So when you look at the map, this is the historical map of the transition, you see that we are now at a stage where what exists in the Palestinian occupied territories is a series of fragmented, discontinuous, uh, sections that are not connected to each other where movement between one area and the next is extremely difficult to near impossible. So when we speak about COVID-19, in this situation, we are speaking about a crisis hitting already multiple crises. And much of what I will speak about today as the conditions in the occupied territories were actually the conditions pre-COVID and were just exacerbated by COVID. What do I mean by a labor-centered perspective and why does it matter when we speak? Many of you are development students or are studying conflict. Um, I find that a labor-centered perspective really helps us to get to the root causes of questions of development. Much of the analysis of the OPT in particular has really overlooked the disparities in wealth and socioeconomic power that has developed in Palestinian society over recent decades. So not just in Palestine, but quite in very often in many conflict situations, we just tend to see them from a conflict paradigm and flatten out the society that we are speaking about. Looking at the question of labor and working conditions allows us to problematize that, allows us to understand power structures and power differentials within the society that we are speaking about. A labor-centered perspective also foregrounds the differences in class power, helping to re reveal the differential impact of the pandemic on Palestinian workers in comparison to wealthier la layers of Palestinian society, for example. So starting from a perspective of labor already begins to tell us a story that is quite different than the common story of simply conflict between two equal sides. 
already we are making that story much more complex and speaking about a society that has lived through a long military occupation that has also impacted the society and created differentials within it. But let me talk about the conception of labor. I do this exercise with my students in my class where I tell them, when I say the word labor, what comes to mind? And quite often students will say a combination of these words, male, overalls, for some reason, factory, and hammer. And it says quite a lot about how we think about labor, that those are the only images that come to mind when we think of what constitutes it. So in this report, we conceptualized of labor quite differently. The conception of labor we use does not simply refer to those individuals who are in jobs or hold formal employment. Unemployed workers actually make up a large and a very increasing proportion of Palestinian labor and unemployment levels are particularly high for women and youth. And there's a major differential, especially between the West Bank and the Gaza Strip as well. A significant majority of Palestinian work is also informal and precarious, i.e. lacking any formal or permanent contract between the worker and the employer. So we're not only speaking about formal employment with contract, we are speaking about the entirety of the population that could potentially be working. And the question of unemployment is really central to how we are thinking around this. Of course, we are also thinking of, of labor in an intersectional way, looking at various jobs within society, including that of social reproduction. So we looked at the education sector, for example. We looked at the healthcare sector, for example. These are highly gendered professions where the majority of the staff are actually women, and the majority of these positions are held by women. So rather than that very traditional overall hammer point of production kind of labor, we're actually speaking, we're conceiving of labor in a much broader way. A very important distinction to also make is the idea and the concept of the working poor. Even for Palestinians holding formal or more secure jobs, including in the public sector, many earn wages that are far below the poverty line and find it very difficult to support their families. So when we speak about labor, it's not simply those in employment or outside of employment, it's also the working poor. Poverty, in other words, we have to stress, is not simply associated with being out of a job, i.e. unemployed, the very high numbers of working poor in Palestine is essential to understanding how the pandemic has impacted labor, especially in the context where Palestinian workers continue to be denied freedom of movement, decent wages, and safe working conditions. And this idea of working poor, I think, is a very important concept for students of development to work with more broadly. Now, moving to the idea of a captive economy, it's, it's not it's very often that Palestinians will speak about the occupied territories as a captive economy. This is a process that has been a long time in the making where the economy has become so intrinsically tied to the Israeli economy that it is hard for it to, hard to call it an independent economy at all. Since the occupation in 1967, the territories have been incorporated, progressively incorporated into the Israeli economy, but also Palestinian labor has been incorporated into the Israeli economy as a source of cheap labor. 
So again, going to these frameworks that we discussed at the beginning, often people think of military occupation, a litany of human rights violations, and there are a litany of human rights violations, but we also need to consider the political economy of how people displaced off of their land become a cheap source of labor for occupation. And this is central to how a, a huge uh, sections of Palestinian society who were uh, on land, who were farmers, who were peasants, became exploitable, cheap labor. Commuting daily into Israel to work in sectors such as construction, agriculture, and industry, Palestinians filled the lowest rungs of the Israeli labor market and covered some of the labor shortfalls caused by prolonged military service. As some of you might know, um, in Israel, everybody serves in the military. So part of the way the Israeli economy functioned is to ensure that Palestinians fill these positions around construction, around agriculture, and around industry. And to this day, Palestinians make up the majority of the construction sector. Through the 1970s, this labor helped underpin an economic expansion in Israel that was dubbed the Palestinian boom. So when we hear about the Israeli economy doing very well, we need to keep in mind that part of the reason was that it had this captive Palestinian economy and this labor force that it could rely upon that was consistently used as cheap labor for the Israeli economy. Without understanding this source of cheap labor, we cannot understand how the Israeli economy developed. How does a captive economy function? This gets entrenched even further with the Oslo Accords. So with the beginning of the occupation in 67, we saw this merging of the two economies. We saw Israel's dependence on Palestinians for cheap labor. With the Oslo Accords, we see this actually signed into permanent agreement with the Oslo Accords signing uh, and dividing the West Bank into three areas, area A, B, and C. The Palestinian Authority was given autonomy over Area A. And at that stage, that was constituting 3% of the West Bank, where 20% of the Palestinian population lived. Another 70% of the Palestinian population lived in Area B, which compromised 24% of the West Bank, over which the PA and Israel had joint authority. And finally, Israel fully controlled Area C with more than 70% of the territory. So it's easy when we think of you know, the Oslo Accords happened, we had that moment with the handshake on the lawn and there was peace. Um, what the map of peace looked like was this map. It was autonomy over very small sections of Palestinian territory. Um, the majority of that territory, 70% of it actually remained in Israeli control. So there was autonomy over specific sectors like education and health, which we will speak about. But one important aspect to this was the economy. Uh, the economy largely remained under Israeli control. Airspace, borders, taxation, issues that make an economy dependent or independent were all left to what is called final status negotiations and the power over them remained in Israeli hands. Which is why it's always important when you look at peace agreements in any context around the world to also look at the economics of the peace agreements. Not just the flashy handshakes, not just who's gonna get a Nobel prize, but actually look at the economic making of these agreements 
is there any redistribution of power actually happening? Is there any redistribution of resources actually happening? And how is this redistribution taking place? Because in this instance, there was very small redistribution of power where the Palestinian Authority had some power over basic functionings. However, the entirety of the economy remained largely captive. And of course, the situation deteriorates with the beginning of the second Palestinian Intifada. On top of this structure, we had ongoing settlements, ongoing illegal settlements. Uh, Israeli governments launched massive settlement expansions, offering large economic incentives for settlers to relocate to the West Bank and Gaza. The number of settlers actually doubled in what was called the peace period. So between 94 to 2000, this is prior to the Intifada, the uprising of the 2000s. This is, of course, prior to COVID. But in that period, when it was supposed to be the peace period, the number of illegal settlers that were moving to the West Bank had actually doubled. And those were focused very much on strategic locations, hilltops and water supplies. That's where the major settlement blocks exist. So again, when we look at the map that I just showed, we need to think in terms of economic resources, what happens to issues of water, for example, which are essential. The settlements were to be connected by bypass roads, restricted access highways that connect settlement blocks with one another and with Israeli cities. The net effect of these measures meant that 90% of the Palestinian population living in areas A and B were confined to a patchwork of isolated enclaves with three main clusters in northern, central, and southern sections of the West Bank, separated from one another by settlement blocks. This is vitally important because when COVID-19 hits and there are restrictions on movement, Palestinians are already facing restrictions on movement between these areas. Already they are restricted to enclaves um, that separate Palestinians from one another through an entire network, and I would say industry, of illegal settlements and so-called bypass roads. Um, in, in other words, there are two systems that are existing in one territory for two sets of people. There is a system of laws and regulation that applies to Palestinians and a different system of laws and regulations that applies to Israelis who are living in the same area. So this creates very much a captive economy and also a remote control situation. Travel between these areas could be shut down at any minute by the Israeli military. All entry to, uh, to and from areas A and B as well as the determination of residency rights in these areas was under Israeli control. Israel also controlled the vast majority of water aquifers, all underground resources, and all airspace in the West Bank, and similar control existed in Gaza even after so-called disengagement. Now, in, in this situation, what we have is both an economy that is captive with its labor, with the labor population, but also an economy that can easily be controlled by remote control. You don't necessarily need soldiers to be on the ground because in a question of minutes, you can actually shut down the entire area. Um, these, these tactics, these military tactics are well 
tried um, internationally. Um, they are very much explored and tested within the occupied territories. But there is a way in which an entire population can basically be locked down, separated from one each other by remote control. And again, these are questions always to ask ourselves when we are looking at conflict situations, when we look at peace agreements, but when we also look at power and control. How are these mechanisms structured and what are the infrastructures that can control a population? Movement restrictions ensured that Palestinian labor essentially became a tap that could be turned on and off depending on the economic and political situation and the needs of the Israeli economy. Israel's complete control over all external borders, this was codified in 1994, what was called the Paris Protocol. Quite often you will hear people speaking about the Oslo Accords as the peace accords. The economic side of these accords was the Paris Protocol. This was the economic agreement between the Palestinian Authority and Israel. This meant that it was impossible for the Palestinian economy to develop meaningful trade relations with a third country. Because under the stipulations of the Paris Protocol, the Palestinian economy was tied in more than one way to Israel. Taxation, for example, one of the first uh, signifiers of an independent economy was tied to Israel. It is actually Israel that collects the taxes for the Palestinian Authority. And what we have seen in the past few years is that Israel decides not to transfer these funds whenever it wants to impose pressure on the Palestinian Authority. So the Palestinian Authority has a fiscal crisis because the actual taxation is being collected on the other side. The Paris Protocol gave Israel the final say on what the PA was allowed to import and export and further increase the dependency of the Palestinian economy on Israeli services, such as water and electricity. Again, let me go back to these early frameworks that we talked about, thinking there are two equal sides and if they would just have concessions, everything would be fine. It becomes very clear when we look at the infrastructures of the political economy of the situation that we don't have two equal sides. We have one side with immense power over the other's economy, where it can control the water supply, the electricity supply, it can control the movement of another population because of how this infrastructure was set up. Unemployment was already extremely high, even at that phase before the COVID-19 pandemic. The strangulation of the Palestinian economy meant that there were very few jobs and that Palestinians relied on very much the construction sector, which was connected to Israel, somewhat to the agricultural sector. But these aggregate figures of unemployment don't tell us the full picture, because as bad as these aggregate figures are, they also hide the significant geographical disparities. Unemployment in the Gaza Strip stood at 45.1% in 2019, far, far the worst in the world, compared to 14.6% in the West Bank. The Gaza Strip actually has one of the worst uh, unemployment rates internationally. Within the West Bank, the labor market opportunities were very much limited in Jenin, Bethlehem, and Ramallah and Jerusalem. Basically, the employment opportunities were very much only in the services sector um, and only in the private sector, but also just limited to the population centers. Because it is so difficult to move from one area to the next, this really limits where, 
where populations can actually work. So you are pushed to only stay in dense urban centers if you want to look for employment. Unemployment levels also tended to be much higher among refugee populations, especially those living in the refugee camps, because their access to movement was denied even further, um, and they were stigmatized even further. Structurally, and the reason I mentioned a feminist political economy when we look at the situation, is that historically there have been major gender disparities in the Palestinian labor market. It's actually one of the largest disparities um, in the world. And authors like Samia Butma have really looked at this and tried to understand why there's such a disparity in terms of gender. Between 2010 and 2019, the female unemployment rate in the OPT almost doubled, reaching 41.1% of Palestinian women over 15 years of age, the highest level in the world. And there are various reasons for this that are really worth exploring. But again, a labor-centered perspective allows us to understand this differential. It allows us to see this differential that is often hidden in human rights paradigms that don't look at these questions of political economy, that simply look at, again, a litany of human rights violations without seeing what's underneath them. Youth unemployment, I won't dwell on all of the statistics. We have a lot of them in the report, but youth unemployment was already uh, quite horrific well before the COVID-19 pandemic. In 2019, 40% of youth aged 15 to 24 were out of work, and many of those are actually university graduates. Youth unemployment in partic is particularly prevalent among women, with 67% of young Palestinian women unemployed in 2019. We have to link this to the fact that the economy itself is being strangulated. The economy itself in general is not growing. So any growth that is happening in the economy, um, it's not youth that are benefiting from it because there are no new sectors. What the sectors that do exist are being largely strangulated. So this, this ensures that there's less and less employment for the majority population. Unlike many other parts of the world, unemployment is higher for young people with education. In 2019, over half, 52% of the Palestinian youth holding a university degree were unemployed. This is particularly important for the sectors we are looking at like health and education, because we do have many graduates with university degrees that are not able to find employment within this captive economy. So Palestinian workers entered 2020 in an environment already structured by decades of de-development, captive economy, strangulation of the economy, and a weakened capacity to deal with the multiple crises that emerged from the COVID-19 pandemic. And the, quest, the reason this is very important is because the COVID-19 pandemic only made the situation much worse. The, the impact of having to stay at home and the lockdowns hurt the most marginalized in society in an economy that was already not functioning and purposely being de-developed. Broadly speaking, there are three main sectors uh, in which Palestinians work. First, Palestinian workers are a significant source of cheap labor in the Israeli economy. One in eight Palestinian workers are employed in, the Israeli, in Israeli settlements or in the construction sector in Israel, meaning they need a special permit in order to be able to work. 
With the pandemic, these workers were largely vilified as vectors for the pandemic. Um, Israel did not want to take responsibility for them. There were cases where these construction workers were just thrown um, across the, the apartheid wall uh, and left there. The Palestinian Authority also did not make matters much better and did not have many benefits for them. So largely these construction workers were vilified as one of the vectors that was moving the pandemic around because they were moving back and forth. And when, the, when everything was shut down, most of them either, either lost their wages or had to stay on the Israeli side in order to keep an income. The second major employer is the public sector. Uh, across the West Bank and Gaza, around 21% of all workers were employed in the public sector in 2019. So the public sector is a really major source of employment. And when we look at the health sector or education, Two of the sectors we looked at in this report to try and understand what was happening, um, they were largely hit with the fiscal crisis that was impacting the Palestinian Authority. Um, they weren't sure about their wages, whether they would be paid or not. And due to the financial crisis, their wages were majorly impacted. The final major employer in the OPT is the private sector. Around two thirds of Palestinian workers are employed in the private sector. What we see in this sector, however, and this is normally small businesses or the services sector, because of such a crisis of unemployment, um, these contracts and these wages, a lot, of, a lot of the workers within them don't have a formal contract, um, what in this country people would call zero hour contracts, so no formal contracts, and the minimum wage is not applied throughout. Now, this doesn't just happen in the private sector. Because many parts of the public sector are also privatized, and if we study many international financial institutions, one of the first precepts they put forward is the privatization of things like healthcare. So when healthcare is privatized, things like sanitation, for example, are the first to be privatized. So many of these workers who work in the sector under sanitation, for example, are being paid below minimum wage. Although the Palestinian Authority does have a minimum wage, um, once things are privatized, there is no way to actually capture um, who is being paid below minimum wage. And a lot of the interviews we did were with, with doctors, nurses, but we also interviewed sanitation workers uh, within the hospitals. Uh, many of them were being paid well below minimum wage, didn't have long-term contracts, and were being sacked uh, or at threat of being sacked consistently. So this is very relevant when trying to study the healthcare sector is quite often we focus on um, doctors and Palestinians actually have quite a strong doctors union or we focus on nurses. Uh, but I would say it's very relevant to ensure that we're looking at all sectors of the healthcare sector because sanitation in a situation like COVID um, is really important. Uh, sanitation workers were having to clean the hospitals and keep them open all the time, yet many of them actually were working without a contract just to keep going. Another issue here is, of course, freedom of movement, because with restrictions to movement, what a lot of these workers had to do was sleep in the hospitals, because if they had gone home, they wouldn't be able to come back the next day. Uh, with the restrictions on movement, having to cross checkpoints, and now having Palestinian Authority checkpoints as well, it became much more difficult to actually make it to their place of work. 
So again, the captive economy, that infrastructure of illegal military occupation um, makes it much more difficult to survive and to deal with questions of healthcare, of education, because it makes the situation that much more dire. For Palestinian workers, the measures taken in response to the pandemic really had a devastating effect. Unemployment worsened significantly. Many employers, employee, employers let go of their employees. We really saw this happen in one of the educational sectors we looked at, um, specifically nurseries, because many nurseries were privatized, but also many students were not attending nurseries. So managers of nurseries decided not to pay their workers. Again, this is significantly a large female uh, labor force that is running these nurseries. And many of them had to sit home and not get paid uh, while other sectors like teachers were getting paid. Um, I think there's an entire study here to be done around nursery education and what happened with it during the pandemic. Um, there is a big question around how childcare and the social reproduction of childcare was being organized. One interesting thing we found as we did the study was that a lot of these workers actually tried to unionize during the pandemic and work together in order to demand more of their rights from the employers of, within these nurseries. Because the nursery employers actually were getting paid by parents to reserve the spots for their children, but they did not want to pay the workers. So the sectors we looked at within the report are health, education, agriculture, and construction. I don't have time to go through every single one of those sectors. Um, I will give you a link to the report, and if you'd like more statistics on any of these sectors, they are available. We also did interviews with NGOs, with trade unions, and with people who work in these sectors. And what we tried to do is take an intersectional approach to our interviews, where, again, we weren't just interviewing doctors, but we were actually trying to interview people across that sector. We weren't just trying to interview university lecturers. We wanted to look at high school teachers, middle school teachers, and nursery teachers as well, sanitation workers across of all of these sectors to understand how the pandemic was affecting people. In the healthcare sector, it becomes obvious very quickly that the consistent destruction of the infrastructure of the Palestinian healthcare sector with repeated military incursions and not rebuilding of um, hospitals really makes it difficult for Palestinian healthcare system to function. Under stipulations of the Paris Protocol, the Israeli Ministry of Health controls the import of pharmaceuticals to the OPT. Only products registered in Israel are allowed entry, effectively cutting off the Palestinian market from other, possibly cheaper options coming from other locations. So structurally within the economy, if we want to look at specific sectors, the, the healthcare sector is intrinsically tied to the Israeli economy. Any medication that goes into the West Bank or the Gaza Strip has to be approved by Israel, meaning those are the more expensive options that are entering. Again, there's a lot to say about each one of those sectors and how they are structured. Um, the healthcare sector has suffered significantly with years of Israeli occupation. There is a brain drain. Uh, there are university graduates that aren't able to find jobs in the sector. Rampant underpayment, but also uh, short-term contracts that are increasing within the sector. 
The education sector, also we found similar traits when we spoke to people, underpayment and wages not going up because of the uh, crisis of the Palestinian Authority. Agricultural sector has almost been completely destroyed, uh, going from being one of the significant aspects of the Palestinian economy, nowadays it's almost at 3% of the GDP. There has been a systematic de-development and destruction of the agricultural sector. And in terms of construction, I already spoke a little bit about the struggles of construction workers during the pandemic. One thing we traced, however, is how is Palestinian labor responding? And one interesting thing we found across these sectors is that trade union organizing is actually on the rise. And this is quite significant because we are getting a lot of independent trade unions outside the traditional trade union structures trying to speak out against the economic situation, against the rampant unemployment, but also the, the wages and what's happening around workers' rights within uh, organizations. There were a lot of calls from our conversations for trade union democratization and independence, and that is something that is organically happening with people organizing. There were a lot of calls for what many name social movement unionism, which is trying to look at trade union issues and worker issues outside of just the trade union structures, but actually connect them to other social movements happening outside. For example, there's quite a strong feminist movement in Palestine, and there were calls to connect issues that women workers were facing with the feminist movement outside. Organizing the unorganized was a large call because the majority of the Palestinian labor force is actually still unorganized. This is not particular to Palestine. There has been a, 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 an international wave of less weaker unionization drives but there were lots of calls for organizing the unorganized. And finally, for thinking of Palestinian workers beyond the, the borders of the West Bank and Gaza, to also look at what's happening with Palestinian refugees externally, but also Palestinians who live in, uh, in Israel and hold Israeli nationality. So to try and think of linking Palestinian workers across. There were many waves of interesting struggles for uh, and, and strikes that happened. One for me that was the most inspiring and the most interesting was the teachers strike, because in this case, the teachers union actually, or the workers within the sector actually went against their official union and went for a strike, regardless of what their official union was saying, because their pay and their wages had been frozen by the Palestinian Authority. The majority of that workforce are women, um, they tried to cross all of the checkpoints to make sure to get to Ramallah and get to the center and be able to demonstrate. As with every strike, there were ups and downs. They made some gains, they made some losses. But the history of that strike really keeps coming back and people pointing to it as a high point of organizing. So just to end, I will say a lot of the writing that we have seen about COVID-19 has really centered the global north. We need a lot more of a research agenda that centers the global south and what has happened around what some people term vaccine apartheid, but also to think about the structures of the political economy of particular situations when it comes to COVID-19. And to use labor as a very interesting lens that can really tell you a lot about society, 
tell you a lot about the power dynamics within, uh, within particular societies, well beyond the overall generalized, generalized look of simply human rights. I mean, human rights are of course important, but we need to go that step deeper and dig into the political economy and focus on labor to really understand differentials within society, who's gaining and who's losing, and what the so-called trickle-down economics of the pandemic have been. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much, Rafif. Um, that 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 was that was really inspiring and um, it's funny because I when you said what do you think about when you think it, and when somebody asks you what do you think about what's labor and if it was out of context given my background I think immediately of the intrapartum um, period during maternity health of, of a woman pushing out a baby but apart from that from um, I'm I'm a health um, I'm a health demographer um, I work on health policy. I think of, of well-being. I think of, of um, labor being both the ability of actually being able to work because you're well, but also that work actually makes you feel well with yourself. So I think actually it's incredibly important to look at the economy and itself through the lens of labor when we look at whether you call it chronic conflict, whether you call it occupation, whether you call it apartheid, whether you call it whatever it is, the, the, the Israel-Palestinian reality. Um, and we often neglect that. And I think it's important even more so when we look at um, COVID um, because we concentrate too much. Well, actually we don't concentrate even enough on it, but we look too much at the health effect. It was interesting actually that I was just looking at a few graphs in terms of the impact on health and mortality of COVID and there's definitely been a hit in terms of the life expectancy during that period in the Palestinian territory. Uh, but also we don't actually look at the direct and indirect um, consequences of the occupation or of the conflict. Um, so I, I, I will be brief because I'm sure there are lots of questions, but uh, it kind of obviously with them with my biased lens um, of somebody who works mainly in health, but I've got kind of a four or five themes that I've, I've extracted from, from your talk and also um, I'm skimming through your um, report, which is incredibly interesting. And I definitely recommend you to look at it. And I didn't have enough time to read it in detail because it's so rich and dense with information. Um, and the first one is definitely power and control. The second one is access. The third one is locality, which is particularly important to me. Um, the fourth one is more about, it's actually more questions that I might have for you about sectors, labor sectors. And the fifth one is actually looking beyond the national reality, which is the international community and what could come after that. And these more um, thinking more from a social public policy perspective um, beyond international aid. I mean, the power and control um, is quite is quite obvious. The the ways in which labor works is in the ways in which things are controlled. And I think um, Rafif shortly had 45 minutes, but it's not just in terms of controlling the laws and the rules around movement and uh, and um, labor laws, but it's also in terms of depriving people of the ability of having um, work, just simply through, for example, I'm thinking of the primary and secondary sector, and um, that you will block. Um, fertilizer coming through the ports for for years, months, 
in a way that the agricultural sector will not be able then to use that fertilizer by the time it comes. That, that is going to have an impact on agriculture. Um, the fact that, um, yeah, again, blocking um, construction material at the port or blocking the way in which things come through. I mean, through the fact even that the, um, the actual um, money that is used in Palestine is Israeli as well, in terms of how the, that is controlling the economy. So you need to think of, of when you think of, of um, uh, conflict or um, of, of the occupation, you need to think of both the indirect and direct. All of these affects and that control and power, and I'm thinking here of the work that we've done with the University of Birzeit, um, the well-being, and I see well-being in terms of deprivation and the ability to actually um, be able to go and, and seek work as well and and kind of um, I see this from an individual perspective rather than uh, from a, an economic one but they're all interlinked um, in my view I'm, I'm not going to talk too much otherwise I might digress there and then links to access access which is which Rafif definitely said with the, with the map the fact that to go from A to B you might think between Ramallah, and I always make that um, example, Ramallah is only 23 kilometers um, or 20 about to Hebron, but you can't go straight if you don't have an, a Jerusalem ID, you need to go all around. So that actually makes it 90 kilometers. So if you work in Hebron, and so if you live in Hebron and you need to work in Ramallah, you can't actually go directly in every day. Instead of taking you 20 minutes, it takes you and 90 minutes. That's another thing that affects the economy, affects the way in which you can access things. And that kind of remote control, I think, is very powerful um, because the ability to be able to close the checkpoints, and if you've ever been to Bethlehem, you will see there are many checkpoints in which you can cross the city. If there is a, a national holiday, you can only cross from one side and you have to go all around it. Again, that affects your ability even to work. Um, that's again uh, around how that affects the economy, how it affects you as an individual. I'm almost thinking this kind of framework in my mind and how it affects uh, the ability uh, to work. And access is linked to locality as well. Where you live does make a massive difference and that goes into the inequalities that you said. There is a huge difference between the bubble of Ramallah, which is the wealthiest town, and Hebron, which is probably one of the most deprived area in the West Bank because it's probably the most contentious um, um, place um, as well um, within, the, um, within the, the country. And I really liked it that at the beginning you gave that introduction around, um, it's called complicated. This is just religious. This is something that we can't, um, I, often, I often get told off and then people say, yeah, you don't understand it. Obviously I don't understand it because I don't live there, but even just going in between 15 years, you see a massive difference in terms of the settlements. Sectors, um, Rafif uh, developed that, but it feels to me that the agricultural sector is probably the one that is worse off here. And, and, and I found it really interesting that your, um, your um, focus on the health sector, obviously the most, um, the most affected during COVID, um, but I think it's, it's almost like an epidemic in itself, the lack of healthcare and workforce in the country and that's one of the main issues around health in Palestine, really. It's not a question of health services or health centers missing. It's basically that you don't have the health workers um, to work there. I mean, for better and for worse, I mean, let's look, and probably I want to go then 
on the institutions, and I want to ask you as well on your perspective on how things are moving on. I mean, the Palestinian Authority is probably one of the biggest guilty um, um, subjects there. Um, the lack of planning around labor force and training as well. Um, that's another issue. And probably the healthcare workforce is probably mainly affected by this lack of planning from the Palestinian Authority. And within sectors, and um, you, you made, you showed us um, lots of interesting numbers, um, just, just as, a, as a trivia there. When we're looking at these unemployment um, rates, mainly when we look at the um, youth unemployment, you need to consider the age structure, and this is the demographer in me, of the population. The median age in um, just the Palestinian territory, so that includes Gaza and the West Bank, is around, uh, what is it, 19.4. As a comparison in the UK, is 33.8. So actually, no, it's 39. So it's half of the UK. So you can imagine that you've got a mass of youth unemployed that's going to have an issue in terms of, of stability. That's going to have an issue of the impact that it's going to have in the long term. So there is a double burden of, of, of both the unemployment, the economy, plus the impact that COVID had, um, which I would be interested to see actually what's going to be the outlook, which we might not know for a few years. And lastly, the actual kind of, of lookout, and here I'm asking more for a point of view really, on the international community. I mean, one of the first things that um, Palestinian researchers will tell you is that we focus very much on international aid um, in monetary terms, uh, but we don't really uh, the, look at the international aid in terms of the political economy and what that might might be. What do you see actually that the, the international community could do within, within this? And the other question I have for you is, um, I got, kind of got really hopeful last week when I read that Hamas and FASA were in Algeria having a discussion at last after, after the failed elections of 2007 and not talking to each other, what is it, 15 years? Um, obviously my Palestinian friends have dampened down my hopes, but I wonder what um, your outlook um, might be um, on this. Um, and yes, I've got, and, and one last point, sorry, I'm gonna stop there. Um, in terms of where do you see training going? Um, I mean, I'm particularly interested in, in terms of the uh, planning for healthcare workforce. The, I mean, despite the, the youthful, um, the youthful uh, structure, there is definitely aging going on within the, the population and the, and the, uh, the healthcare problems, which are increasing. And, the, and COVID definitely exacerbated problems around um, continuum of care around chronic diseases. So yeah, those are my points and thank you so much. Okay, so we're first going to give Rafif about five minutes to respond to, to Ziana's questions. And then I would like to get some questions from the audience. We already have a couple online, but I'm hoping people in the room will also be full of questions. Um, thank you very much for that engagement. Um, on power and control, absolutely. Um, there, there isn't a way in 40 minutes to go through the various forms of power and control. Um, and, and most of the time, the political economy aspect is completely not discussed and not talked about. So even when we touch on it briefly, it has to be quite basic because there's not a lot of discussion about it. I'm hoping that will change and people will be looking at these structures a lot more. 
This very much ties into the question of locality because the fragmentation means that there are certain areas or villages that are absolutely unserviced and it's very difficult to get access to them or zones between the wall or between a checkpoint and another checkpoint that are completely inaccessible uh, and people have to travel large uh, amounts of time to, for a distance that's actually quite short and you'd be able to cross it. This became very obvious during the pandemic with extra restrictions, but it also made the work of healthcare workers very, very difficult to be able to get to a hospital to do your job. You had to go through all of these restrictions. It makes it very difficult for people to also get jobs if they live in these localities. So you see an internal migration into the city centers because that's the only way you can get a job. So part of, part of what happens then is, is also the effects kind of trickle down. You have people having to move to the urban center to get a job, but they need to put their children in nursery or they need to hire somebody to take care of their children who are now stuck in the village and can't come with them. So it really, really destroys the fabric of society in, on so many different levels, this fragmentation of the geography. And we can't really understand the political economy of the OPT without understanding this fragmentation. It's not, when we say geographic fragmentation, it's not just the borders or, or lack of movement. It's also fragmenting societies, fragmenting families, um, fragmenting one's access to healthcare. All of that becomes fragmented according to the diktats of a military occupation. Um, the labor force and training, there is absolutely a mismatch between where the funding goes and what's happening with the Palestinian labor market. Some of that has to do with the blueprint that the Palestinian Authority gets from the World Bank, from the IMF, from various international institutions about what to prioritize. Also from the international community. Um, the international community tends to fund the security sector very heavily, uh, tends to fund the policing sector, uh, judges, laws and regulations, because, and this is the political, the politics person in me, uh, those projects of intervention and reconstruction usually focus on rebuilding these kinds of security infrastructures of governance while ignoring um, the human aspects. So there has been very little funding, for example, for education. And if you look at the, and I encourage everyone to um, always look at the breakdown of these budgets because the Palestinian Authority budget, there is a major section for security and very little for education, very little for health, which then also means there's very little training and a mismatch with the labor market. There is now a move to rethink um, how the money is being spent to try and detach from the, the international funding model and what that dictates for one to have as, a, as an economy. But that's very difficult to do um, in a captive economy where very much your in income is dependent on the international community. It would really take a, a rethinking completely of the Palestinian economy to make it more self-reliant. Uh, there are a lot of youth experimentation now around agriculture and other sectors of how to do this, but the, the connection is very difficult uh, to sever um, and, and the mismatch really exists and you pointed to it exactly. In the healthcare sector, it's, it's one of the worst, I would say. In the agricultural sector, it's very highly dependent on actually female labor that is underpaid. So 
again, all, all of these questions become questions of social reproduction as well. The international community and whether Hamas, Fatah split, um, I, I don't want to be uh, cynical, but I think the structure of the Palestinian Authority and the Oslo Accords themselves have kind of bound the discussion of Palestinian self-determination so much with this issue of a two-state solution which on the ground is very difficult to see how that will happen anymore. But also economically, the structures are very much connected to how Israel functions. So much of the aid that comes to Palestinian territories actually just gets recycled into Israel because everything that the Palestinians buy comes from the Israeli market. So when, when there's this language of there's so much funding that goes to Palestinians and especially under the Trump administration, um, there was a lot of attacks on Palestinians as, you know, welfare recipients. But in a condition of captive economy, and we say this in the report, this aid actually largely gets recycled and goes to the Israeli economy. It's not, it's not necessarily being spent on Palestinians, especially that a lot of the things that do get constructed, let's say you construct a hospital or a water well, get destroyed by the Israeli military as well. So there's, there's a major issue here around external funding what it does, who it does it for, um, and who's actually the beneficiary from it. And there's quite a good a space, I think, of critical work on international aid and Palestine that really critiques this model. Thank you very, very much. Um, do we have any questions from the audience? So we have one question over here. Okay. So I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take uh, three questions from the audience and then one question online, and we'll do four at a time. Okay. Hi, um, thank you so much for your very interesting talk. Um, I really appreciated that you sort of brought in the frame of labor um, and a captive economy, because I feel like we so often do frame it um, in a religious sense. But I guess my question is, um, because you've framed it in that way through labor and economics, I feel like the takeaways can be applied to other areas of the world that are experiencing sort of similar um, situations. One that comes to mind is Kashmir. Um, obviously, we can't simplify any issue, so I, I can't say they're the same, but I'm curious as to how the report's takeaways, um, what do you think can we bring to a situation like that? And um, what can we learn from sort of what you've produced in this article? Thank you very much. So we have a question from upstairs. I feel like I saw one at the back. Yes. And down here, could we, this gentleman over here. Hi Rafiq, thank you so much for that. That was really interesting. Um, I think I was trying to understand, like looking forward and looking at what solutions we have in Palestine to kind of tackle these really kind of integrated issues that, you know, Israel is very tied to Palestine. I'm trying to think about like, what are the ca capacity to attract foreign direct investment into the private sector in um, Palestine? Um, how would that, do you think that might have any um, impact in kind of driving change and disconnect from um, the Israeli economy and political forces at play? Hi, uh, thanks again for your for your talk. I think my question kind of follows on from what was mentioned. Um, how feasible is it to escape the captive economy? Um, because I know that 
talking about conditionalities that's imposed by Israel. First of all, there needs to be a free Palestine. But uh, second of all, in sort of an international advocate and activism, I know there's a lot of talk about BDS, talking about how integrated Palestine is into the Israeli um, economy and vice versa. Is there a point to BDS? Does it help? And also, is there more point in the international community advocating for, like the person said about uh, foreign direct investment and sort of Palestinian products to help uh, in that way free the economy a bit? Okay, and the one question from online is from Ala Mahi, who is a mathematician at ENS OM. And she asks, or he asks, what are the long-term implications of the ongoing de-development Israeli policy on Palestine's ability to rebound economically? Um, those are all very big questions. <laughs> um, absolutely to your question, the idea isn't that this just applies to Palestine. I think this is a framework that we need to use a lot more in international development generally. Um, the questions of, of labor kind of fell off the agenda for quite some time. And I think they're coming back with a vengeance right now, especially in the post-COVID moment, because economies are struggling um, internationally. Youth internationally, there's a problem actually finding employment or figuring out what can be done after university degrees. This is a, a generalized problem. Uh, looking at it in places with long-term conflict, uh, is relevant because it also explains a lot about the nature of the conflict itself. It really takes us away from those par paradigms of equality and equating both sides of a conflict to really understanding the underlying dynamics and who really holds power. And that's why I think a labor-centered perspective is extremely useful to that. It, it, it allows us to see those dynamics, but also not forget about differentials within society. Um, what has happened with the conditionalities and the structural adjustment for quite some time is that there have been thin layers of these societies that have benefited quite significantly. And we can't pretend that hasn't happened. When we speak about the Palestinian Authority and critique it, for example, um, there have been beneficiaries on this side as well. So a labor-centered perspective allows us to center the lived reality of those that are most marginalized in society, to have a feminist perspective on the political economy of the situation as well. And I think this can be applied to any uh, condition, that any situation that we are looking at. Um, I want to differentiate here between generalized FDI uh, for the private sector, whatever that may be, versus much more localized attempts in Palestine to disconnect from the Israeli economy through agriculture, through internal agriculture. There are experiments with that. There have historically been experiments with trying to be self-sufficient and self-reliant. It's extremely difficult in a condition of severe occupation that dictates every single aspect of your life, down to whether you can get a driver's license or not, for example, whether you can go to school in that morning or not. So think under these conditions, what it would mean to build a self-sufficient economy is quite difficult. There are some experiments with it, but they're, they're, they're quite limited. And there's a lot of rethinking around how that can be done. Um, when the Oslo Accords first happened, the big line was, the West Bank is and the Gaza are going to become the new Singapore of the Middle East. 
Um, I think there's questions about who wants to become Singapore? Why would you want to become Singapore? Is Singapore the best model? Um, but that's, that's a much bigger question to tackle. Um, there, there is investment and at, at different moments, there were attempts to invest and attract corporations to come in a way that was actually quite cynical, where on the borders of the apartheid wall, for example, there was the idea to build industrial zones with Israeli capital and cheap Palestinian labor. I think those kinds of investments only reinforce the power dynamics and only reinforce the use of Palestinians as cheap labor while entrenching the situation of occupation rather than actually changing it. Um, I do think there are campaigns like boycotts, divestments, and sanctions which try to sever that relationship of international support that Israel receives. Um, the whole idea is to build campaigns similar to the ones that were built around apartheid South Africa to say that this regime continues with this, these abuses because it is getting international support um, and to sever that international support. There have been successes within that campaign. Um, it needs to go a lot further and grow a lot more before we can see a bigger impact on the ground. In the post-COVID moment, um, the, the, the economic situation has become so dire. And if you're following Palestinian politics, the past two weeks on the ground have been horrific. There have been settler attacks uh, against the population. Settlers have been uprooting olive trees, illegal settlers. <laughs> uprooting olive trees, working hand in hand with the Israeli military. So as the world is turned and not looking at the, at the situation, um, Israel has much more of a green light to keep doing what it is doing in the occupied territories and not getting a pushback. So anything internationally that can be done to put the spotlight on this is, is, is urgent, not just needed, it's actually urgent. Okay, more questions. So we have... Um... A question down here at the front. We have a question back there. Is it uh, maybe in the front row? And then this gentleman in the white here. We have so many questions this week. So thank you, guys. Uh, thank you for your presentation. I just wanted to ask that uh, despite the negative consequences of COVID-19 on the economies as you've already presented, there were the emergence of new opportunities, just like remote jobs or online services that can be provided. Uh, having said that, what do you think are the barriers for the Palestinian nationals to uptake such type of jobs, especially that they seem to be more convenient with restricted mobility as you've already presented? Thank you very much. It's a great question. Um, hello, thank you for your talk. Um, I just wanted to ask like, how much this criticism of current international aid schemes and languages would call for a reform or paradigm shift in development discourse? And maybe if we can start ex extrapolating the effects of COVID-19 on Palestine, but also Syria and Lebanon to think about not just reform, but also maybe revolution or maybe a post-development paradigm. And I have a second question, if I can ask. Um, uh, I think that's really um, like uh, interesting what you mentioned about the internal experiments about agriculture uh, as like um, a way for self-reliance. And I had similar experiences back in Lebanon. And I'm thinking about what are the limits uh, of such internal experiments, given how agricultural workers are important as cheap labor labor within this captive economy and not as like 
um, grassroots initiatives aim, aiming at self-reliance. Okay, and I just want to jump some uh, online question that's connected to that is Angeliki, uh, and I'm very sorry if I'm mispronouncing names, Tampanzi, and she's an MSc student at LSE, and she's asking, can a comparative approach help us find solutions? So it's kind of similar to the beginning of your question. So, um, and then upstairs, the gentleman in the white. Question. My question is pretty much the same as it was just asked, because okay. you... You mentioned a few times these um, attempts towards self-reliance, but you said that these experiences were rather limited. So I was wondering, like, if you had some maybe some examples of these experiences and some successes and failures, failures as well, and like, yeah, maybe expand on why they're so limited. Mm -hmm. I mean, a, a question that I had that is related to these questions is a colleague of ours, Kate, has looked at um, COVID and informal economies in, different, in Western Southern Africa. And she shows how in West Africa, because informal labor is more independent, um, people were able to respond a lot more and kind of go around restrictions and still say safe whereas in southern africa where labor is more informal labor is more dependent they couldn't do that and there were impacts on health and on econ economy too but i think your case is interesting because even the independent labor is restricted right so i, I also on this point of self-sufficiency i wondered if you could talk about the variation between your three types in terms of of the impacts Sorry, I'm writing all this down. Um, I think that, first of all, thank you all for staying longer on a Friday to have this conversation. That's just wonderful. And I think part of the thread of these questions is, is a broader question about development paradigms. Um, I, I've just written a, a paper in development and change around the Middle East more broadly and what's happening with development in the post-COVID period and also what's happening with political hegemony and how many of the regimes uh, aren't coping very well right now. So we had the first wave of uprisings in the early 2010s. Those were very much about the development paradigm in the region. Although many institutions tried to frame them as simply democracy uh, without the economic side, people were also going out into the streets to say the development model in this region has just produced mass disparities of wealth and a layer of uh, young people that cannot find employment in these economies, but also a, a huge question of migration. Uh, the Middle East is seeing the largest wave of migration, uh, and it's largely internal uh, since World War II. And although it's often framed as you know, a refugee crisis for Europe, the reality is much of this migration has actually happened in the region, impacting countries in the region. So, is the, is the developmental paradigm in the region working? No, it's, uh, and, and, and on every measure, on every metric, I don't think it's working. On, if you're just looking at human suffering levels, there's massive issues happening. If you're looking at economic indicators, there are major problems. So the, the developmental model hasn't been working and it hasn't been holding up either. So we had the first wave of uprisings, then we had a second wave when COVID hit. Um, Lebanon was one of the countries, of course, but Sudan and Algeria. So the, the developmental paradigm isn't holding, 
I would say internationally, it's no longer holding. Um, we've just had like another prime minister in this country, whatever, I won't get into that. So there's, there's, there is a non-holding of these economic factors that we've been given for quite some time. And I think partly why all of these questions are coming up. If we were doing this talk 10 years ago, um, I had to actually put a lot of effort into why the developmental paradigm is not working. But nowadays it's actually become a lot more obvious because the crisis itself has become so much more obvious. If you look across the region, um, Iraq, Yemen, uh, Syria, Lebanon, across the, Tunisia, uh, who, which just signed an IMF conditionality thing. So there's, you see this across the region and that's why I think going back to your first question, this, this labor-centered uh, approach is really important for looking at more critical development across the region, not just for Palestine and trans-regionally as well. Um, do I have all of the questions about how, do I have all the answers about how you build a self-reliant uh, economy under conditions of military occupation? Unfortunately, I don't. I think that is a collective effort that has to be done by people on the ground. Uh, but to answer your question, it's extremely difficult in conditions of military occupation when your economy is so desperately reliant on foreign aid. Um, without the foreign aid, it's very difficult for the Palestinian economy to function. It does hit sectors very differentially. Um, the agricultural sector, once you close that down and farmers can't actually sell their products, um, that is very difficult. So one thing that happens is a lot of products end up rotting rather than circulating within the economy. And that is a very big way you can restrict um, agriculture. The same for construction. If you don't allow construction material to come in, it's very hard to do reconstruction. Having said all this, um, I find it remarkable how people are continuing to um, find ways to hold up community and survive despite all of this. Um, with the levels of violence that we have especially seen in the past year, um, it's, really quite, it's really quite remarkable how people are still trying to hold up and hold community together and organize and have trade unions despite of everything and fight for their rights despite of everything. When it comes to remote, remote jobs, um, there were some openings, uh, but not enough to sustain an entire economy. Uh, again, now there's all these discussions around opening up a tech sector in Palestine, but again, it ties to the Israeli tech sector. And there are waves of people who go for it because they're desperate for jobs, but it's very much tied to the Israeli tech sector, again, as a cheap labor force. So there's a, there's a much bigger structural question here around what, what is the room for maneuver to build an independent economy if you're under occupation? And I don't think your room for maneuver is that large. It would be good if it's your starting point and if the Palestinian Authority was thinking in that direction, but it really does limit your room for maneuver. Um, I mean, if you think about post-colonial states, they're limited in their <laughs> room for maneuver. Imagine if you add a layer of direct military occupation to that, it just makes it very difficult. Okay, I want to squeeze in one last question because I promised him, uh, the gentleman at the back. And sorry, if you have a question, you can come up afterwards. <laughs> Maybe. Oh, oh, it was this gentleman. Sorry. We had two. I'm sorry. Uh, can we take two? Okay. 
Uh, hello, Mrs. Ziada. My name is uh, Alan Shaban. Thank you very much for uh, today's presentation. Um, my question to you is very uh, simple and more global, really. After listening to you talk and uh, exposing all of those facts, um, what would you say is your explanation as to why the rest of the world stays quiet regarding the Israeli occupation? Um, of Palestine and all the atrocities that are committed there on uh, a daily basis on civilians by Israeli armed forces. Um, and how do you see the situation unfold there in the next uh, weeks, uh, month, and year? Thank, Thank you. you very much. Okay, one last question. Yeah. Hi, can you please elaborate why you keep using the word apartheid? especially considering the fact that Israel left Gaza in 2005. And building on this question, can you also please address what is the responsibility of Hamas in actually developing the economy of, of the Gaza Strip? Oh, I can answer. I was, for some reason, I was waiting for the microphone. Um, thank you for, for your question. Um, I think there's multiple reasons. It's not, it's not one single reason why this has been ongoing for quite some time. Um, it has a lot to do with the paradigms I listed initially about people say it's too complicated and don't care about the intrinsic long-term issue that they just stay away from it. Or people see it as a conflict with two equal sides, obfuscating the reality of what really exists as a settler colonial apartheid regime. So. I think there's multiple layers. There isn't one quick answer as to why the world stays quiet. Um, I can tell you that for many Palestinians, it's a major frustration because at, at the center of it is a dehumanization of the Palestinian experience. Um, that historically, the ethnic cleansing of Palestine in 48, the occupation in 1967, um, the ongoing crimes and human rights violations um, the killing of a journalist in broad daylight on a television screen, what the settlers are doing in the last two weeks, the fact that this doesn't resonate um, is extremely dehumanizing. And it is a serious uh, manifestation of how I would say racialization works and how Palestinians are looked at as less than in, in a certain paradigm and a certain view of, of Arabs and a certain view of Palestinians as well. I do think it's shifting. Uh, again, if we're speaking just 10 years ago, uh, it was much more difficult to speak about the occupation. It was much more difficult uh, to explain the Palestinian side or the Palestinian perspective. I think due to a lot of hard work by many Palestinians, it has become a lot easier to actually explain the situation. I think many more people are becoming aware, many more people are becoming active, but we have a long way to go. And just the last two weeks uh, of what was happening tells us that we have a long way to go before we can garner um, the kind of so the kind of uh, information and knowledge that will actually shift the situation on the ground. Um, to your question about why I keep calling it an apartheid regime, I'm actually using the definition international law, the Convention on Apartheid, about a regime that treats uh, two people differently that live in the same territory which is a form of racial discrimination. So if you look at the West Bank and you look at the Gaza Strip, there were two systems of laws that apply to the same population that lives in that territory. There's quite a number of books now that elaborate on why the use of the word apartheid. I can very happily recommend all of them to you. I think you'd find them 
quite insightful. Um, you might disagree, but I think you would find them really insightful. Hamas, of course, has a responsibility as the body that was elected to govern Gaza. I don't think they have the best economic paradigm either. Um, and I, I think just as the Palestinian Authority, the Fatah side, the Hamas side also has to take responsibility for the economic conditions, um, keeping in mind that they are still subordinated to the dynamic of the military occupation. Israeli soldiers might have left the Gaza Strip but Israel continues to control the borders, what comes in, uh, down to a list of actually what spices can go into the Gaza Strip. So I would, I would call that an occupation situation. If you can control whether coriander goes into a territory or not, that's quite a lot of control. Um, and I'll leave it at that. Thank you very, very much. I think that uh, you've not only provided a very interesting talk today, but I think we've got a lot of interesting ideas maybe for dissertation projects, you know, quantifying some of this immobility and the excess prices, excess mortality. These are some really interesting ideas for researchers. And one of the things that I took from watching your poetry online is the way of trying to make the kind of everyday violence of the Palestinian experience as loud as kind of the massacres and the big scale violence. So I think kind of making visible some of the kind of the ways that this restrictiveness raises prices, shapes wages, shapes unemployment, these kinds of disparities are very important and interesting ideas for people who want to do uh, dissertation projects. So thank you again. Can we give her a second round of applause? <laughs> And I'm sorry I didn't take all of the questions, uh, but if you want to come and ask a question afterwards or send her an email, I'm sure Rafiq will be happy. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this lecture recording from the Autumn 2022 Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice lecture series. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Search YouTube for International Development LSE. Find out about upcoming events, including the next Cutting Edge Lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website and find us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates. <laughs>